What's up, guys? It is Thursday, December 26th. This week on the podcast, I have Galen Wolf, CEO of Urbit. Urbit is reimagining the operating system. It's a OS for an individual to run their own permanent personal server. It was a fun episode to record, so I think you guys will like it. As always, be sure to subscribe if you have not already and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about Urbit and blockchain. Enjoy. This is the Blockhash Podcast. All right, Galen, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good, good, very good. So for the audience and for the listeners, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now kind of in your in your career and um, this point in your life? Sure. So I grew up in sort of rural California, surrounded by um, both weird Silicon Valley people and um, kind of weird creative people. And so I, I guess, sort of naturally developed a very young interest in building stuff with computers and a very young interest in building stuff with my hands. So I was always building software, but I went to school to study architecture. When I moved from California back east, I went to Cooper Union, which is kind of a weird place, uh, and made a lot of things with my hands, did a lot of hand drawing, and basically put myself through school by building software, building really sort of conventional web software. And I did that uh, to the point that I sort of like was just completely sick of it and completely sick of the existent software stack. And I think my, you know, early interest in computers was in how computers could be these sort of wonderful open-ended tools. And I felt like I was just building over and over things that were never going to be anything like that. You know, basically, you know, really featureful websites that do cool stuff, but um, ultimately not that interesting. And we're, I think, ultimately always going to be just, you know, monolithic, centralized things. So by the time I was finished with school in probably 2011, 2012, I was really on the lookout for, I followed Bitcoin from early on and things like that. And I was always interested in new and emerging technology. So I, I feel like I was as interested in, in Bitcoin as I was in BitTorrent, really. And <clears throat> so I was always looking for things that were basically like, new forms of technology that could get us back to sort of like what it felt like to use a computer when it was just a PC. And in 2013, found Urbit and got sort of fully sucked in. Obviously, you know, leaving out lots of details, but that's the, that's kind of the high level. What, what interested you about Bitcoin and Litecoin that piqued your interest? I think the thing that I was looking for um, with any of those... I got really into, for example, this thing called Canlist Store for a while, which was all about distributed file storage. Um, uh-huh. The thing that was fascinating to me about these systems is basically that they worked trustlessly and they're, ex- they're sort of extremely reliable. So, you know, in the conventional world, the sort of conventional web stack built things, um, you know, the, the inside is pretty ugly. Um, it's just a lot of stuff kind of duct taped together that doesn't seem like it's going to last a long time. And it relies, you know, all of these things rely really heavily on an operator, like someone to maintain them. So whenever 
anyone could show off a technology where it was like just maintained by a whole network. That was always super fascinating to me and seemed like a legitimate uh, basically form of innovation that was worth paying attention to. Right. And you mentioned decentralized file storage too. That's, that's also something that really got me interested in what blockchain can do as a technology. And um, there are a few projects, um, or one at least one notably that was working on building on top of IPFS. Yeah, that, that, that whole area of blockchain definitely seems like it has a lot of reliable use cases in the future. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's something you were also interested in. Yeah, I've definitely been following IPFS since very, very early on. Sorry, <laughs> someone, someone is interrupting me from the outside and getting fully distracted. No um, uh, I'm sitting, you, none of your listeners can see this, but I'm sitting in a room full of windows um, and other people just walk into the room. Um, so everybody yeah, say I hi. Think- they walk by. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm waving at them and being like, no, 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 I'm actually, I'm, I'm recording something. Don't come in here. Uh, yeah, I think that's the way that it's, it's, it's often hard to explain this, especially like Bitcoin maximalists today, but the, you know, just the problem of how do you store bits super reliably without one operator is an interesting problem, whether or not you're storing, you know, a ledger of transactions or whether you're storing, you know, giant binary blobs. And the, and the technical solutions look really different. You know, IPFS is very different than, than Bitcoin. Um, but they're, to me, they're equally interesting because I'm just, I'm fascinated by, I guess I see the sort of human problem, like how do we, I get a computer that's flexible uh, to use uh, that I, that basically is sort of fun in the way that I remember computer be, computers being as a kid. Uh, that's ultimately a technical problem. So for me, I was just always fascinated by anyone working on that sort of field of, of technical issues. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, do you think that IPFS can like really achieve its, its goals in terms of what it wants to be? Because I know it's been around for a little while. It, it seems like a very slow project. Yeah, well, we could be accused of that too. Uh, it's been around for a really long time too. I mean, this stuff is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I think IPFS is doing reasonably well. No, I know some people over there and, and having a little bit of visibility into uh, their work. I think it's promising. You know, the most important thing to look forward to in in IPFS world is really Filecoin. Like that, I think Filecoin's an interesting potential solution to really getting IPFS fully off the ground. Um, the way that I've always looked at, you know, we live in a very different time than the 70s. So most of this kind of foundational technology that runs the web we're in, all of this stuff was, <coughs> excuse me, was basically, you know, built for fun, it was kind of experimental, and was built by this group of nerds and the military who were working on it purely for technical reasons for fun, but they weren't competing with anything else. But in the world we live in today where you can, you know, I can send you a payment via Venmo, I can send you a message via Facebook, I can send you an image via Instagram, whatever, the level of convenience of existing technology is so incredible. Uh, that any new technology obviously, you know, has to basically has no choice but to compete with those um, incumbents. And so I think that's the, you know, IPFS thing is super promising is, is, a, is a nice piece of technology. The real question is just how do you get it off the ground? How do you make it usable enough that it really gets adopted? Um, that's a bit of an open question, but I think they're doing a good job. No, they are doing a pretty good job. And 
I actually invested in Filecoin too um, a few years ago. I think when they um, did their ICO or whatever, I got like a SAF for it and everything. I, just, I haven't seen my Filecoin yet. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully that project is is doing well. I'd like to see more from them at some point. I think you'll see more. Based on my understanding, you will see more reasonably soon. Um, I'm not sure what's public and what's not public, but I think they've been right. making really good, good progress. Yeah, they, I mean, they seem like a really cool project. And, and it makes sense, the whole idea behind decentralized file storage and, and being able to share, like, your your storage, your information, your your, your computing power, if necessary, um, to some kind of global network. I mean, it, it all makes a lot of sense, and it's very efficient in some ways. Um, but hopefully that becomes a reality. Devil's in the details. I mean, the... <laughs> You, know, you have to remember, like it took uh, ARPANET is like what 1972, 1968. Mm-hmm. You know, and the consumer internet's like 1992 or something. I mean, uh, it's a long time. I mean, you got you got we had everyone had a lot of fun in the 80s. You know, dialing up bulletin boards and stuff like that. And I sort of feel like maybe we can accelerate the process of you know rebuilding infrastructure. Actually, I think we we can, but I don't know if we can get from you know, decades to full like startup timeline, meaning like, you know, a couple of years, but I think you can get it down. You can compress it quite a lot where it's more like most of these foundational technologies will take on the order of five to 10 years to really mature versus like 20 to 30 years. Um, but from, yeah, it's, it's definitely not the same as, as a, um, yeah, as, as it's, it's not like a startup basically, or like, like your classic, like YC style startup. It definitely takes time for a lot of these, uh, technologies to, to come to fruition. Um, and it, and maybe it also depends on like what it is we're talking about. Like, I mean, there's a new iPhone every year. <laughs> so, I mean, the iPhone definitely develops very, very quickly, but I mean, there's also a lot of new high level ideas out there that definitely more, need more time to, to grow. Yeah. The real issue. And I mean, we experience a lot of this too, is that you are, you're solving for real, like legitimate unknown unknowns sometimes, right? And, mm-hmm. and the last thing any startup wants to do is research. Um, and I think most projects that are concerned with fundamental infrastructure um, have no choice in many cases, but to do at least some research. Uh, and that's just, you know, research takes time and it's very difficult to predict uh, exactly how long research will take in many cases. Um, to be honest for us, I mean, like, I, I feel like, we're kind of on, we're mostly on the other side of that, um, but I've you know we I've been working on Urbit since 2013 now, and certainly if you would ask me if we've been having this conversation in like 2014 2015, I probably would have been more bearish in a way than like I have no one knows how long this stuff is going to take, and I actually I probably wouldn't be that surprised if you, if you asked Juan or you asked people that working on IPFS if they felt the same right. way. Yeah, let's talk about Urbit. Um... I'm very curious about what you guys are doing with it. It seems really interesting. So what is it exactly? Sure. So the way to think about Urbit is basically that, you know, we even, you know, in order for us to record this podcast, we coordinate via email that all goes through a server that someone else runs mm-hmm. to record the podcast, go through a service that someone else runs. And, you know, to use my phone, I've got a bunch of apps and services on it, all of which go through, you know, other people basically run the software. And the reason that, like, that, that's basically always going to be the case so long as someone else has to run your software for you. So the, the sort of basic Urbit thesis is that 
is so long as server-side software is exceedingly complex, you know, the ordinary people can't really control how they communicate, how they collaborate, how they, you know, really how they send money, really how they participate in decentralized organizations and so on. And so Urbit is basically new technology to run on the server side. So that's designed for a single person to run themselves. So everyone has their own Urbit. Urbits communicate directly. Ideally, you run your Urbit in, you know, on a conventional cloud server or someone runs it for you. But it's completely secure and private to you, contains all of your data, runs all of your applications. Primarily, I guess at a very high level, I think that you know, today's internet's really good at basically being like TV. It's really good for like one person broadcasting to a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to person-to-person communication, the web is kind of a mess, right? For us to actually communicate, we switch between all these different modes of communicating. We don't really have one system to pull them all together. So when it comes to person-to-person communication in a group, that's really like what Urbit is for. Um, and what Urbit I think can really improve upon in terms of just like the everyday lives of how people use connected technology to, you know, stay connected with their friends and family, uh, stay connected with the people that they work with or the people that they collaborate with. And we can get into, you know, what exactly Urbit is as, as technology, where Urbit is in terms of like what you can do with it today and in the future and so on. Um, but I think that's kind of like, that's the high level uh, goal, I guess. Right. And in terms of consolidating communication between people, how, how is it different than using Facebook or using Twitter um, on the internet to connect with your friends and your family and to interact and uh, communicate? In the case of a single application, so like Facebook or like Twitter, Urbit gives you you can think of, you know, an Urbit Twitter, for example, as like everyone everyone runs Twitter themselves. Your Twitter is secure and private to you. And when you interact with someone else, you send them messages directly. So there's no one, you know, uh, mining your data, looking at what you're doing and controlling the interface. Where I think Urbit is even more powerful or the thing that's more interesting to me really is when you look at the way that say an organization or a group works together. So we all have some Frankenstack, right? Of apps that we kind of cobble together in order to get work done or stay in touch with a group of people. So it might be like, it's not just that you use Facebook, right? You use Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, Signal or whatever to keep up with your friends. You use Asana, Slack, uh, Airtable, Notion to collaborate with people. And in that case, the user experience is terrible. Uh, You can't really build on top of it. It's just sort of severely limited, at least in terms of the original vision of the computer, right? The computer is all about, I can do a bunch of stuff in one place. I can decide how things work. And of course, I know that I actually own it. I can extend it. I can crack it open. I I can develop on top of it. Um, and the sort of centralized world that we live in is just never going to be that thing. And I think then by extension, you're never going to kind of capture people's creativity, right? People aren't going to invent with their computers. They're effectively kind of told what to do with them by the people who develop, you know, apps and services on top of existing sort of server-side software. Is Urbit something that would 
be a physical device like the desktop computer or is it something that would exist purely on the internet or on on the cloud or on or how does that work necessarily good question yeah we we like we've been using this your last computer tagline which i think is kind of catchy but it's confusing because it's not a piece of hardware no urbit concretely is really two pieces of technology they're both of which are well one of which is a suite of smart contracts lives on a blockchain that's urbit id basically an identity system we use that identity system to log you into urbit os which is a completely sealed program that runs on top of basically any internet connected device so certainly a bare cloud server like one you would get from aws or gcp uh, many phones lots of just conventional internet connected devices around your house you know at a high level you can think of it really like we used to run the internet over the phone lines right and it made this funny noise and it wasn't really designed to run it as audio you know on analog lines urbit basically and but it's of course that protocol like or, you know tcp ip is like totally has doesn't know anything about the phone lines it's running over urbit basically treats our existing infrastructure the same way it's like a totally sealed system that's built to just layer over all of the stuff we already have to make it easy to use and easy to understand or sort of more flexible maybe more powerful for an individual than what's afforded for by you know conventional services so in a mature urbit world we expect that you'll have a host that will host your urbit for you um, on a cloud server somewhere and when you want to run things locally you can install urbit locally on whatever hardware you have um, hosting an urbit is not like uh, having a facebook account because your urbit is completely sealed so it's a lot more like hosting a vps or something where you have a terms of service with your host that they're not going to inspect your data so sort of widespread data mining and so on is, is like much less likely in a world where I can always download my Urbit and move to a different host. Okay. So if you did download it, you could take it offline for offline use. That's right. Yeah. We built the system primarily to be um, really easy to update over the network. Actually, everything, our sort of base foundation, so the base, basic virtual machine at the very bottom of the system uh, never changes. So that means... I mean, in effect, you could, let's say you have a hosted Urbit, you sign up, it seems cool, you're like, I don't know, you're going to go backpacking for a month, download it, put it on a USB stick, throw it in your closet, um, come back, when plug it in, and it should basically be able to download all of its updates over the network and sort of get completely up to date without any, uh, you know, without any system administration, without any work on the part of the user. This also means that hosting it yourself is reasonably easy. The reason I think most people would want it to be hosted is just because then you can log in from any browser. You can just sort of you know, wake up in the desert, remember your private key, and, and log right back in. And you mentioned how blockchain is used to help you log in or access your Urbit. Are you guys using a specific project in general, or do you guys have your own uh, build-out for that? So... The original design for Urbit ID actually didn't use a blockchain at all, and we were originally intending to just host it on Urbit, and that may happen again in the future. To bootstrap the system, we deployed the ID system on Ethereum. So Urbit ID is basically a suite of smart contracts. They're all open source. You can go check them out on GitHub. Same is true for the operating system, of course. 
um, those IDs are scarce by design. So um, one of the problems that has never really been solved because we don't have you know, real decentralized networks is identity in a decentralized network. So right now, you know, for us to send email, for example, for the most part, there's someone who's making sure that your email is not sending spam. Or for you to have a Twitter username, there's someone who's, you know, like Twitter is making sure that <clears throat> if someone is being abusive, they lose their ID. So our solution to this, because we don't want there to be a central authority that can do that, is basically to say, all right, addresses should have value. And in order, and so in order for them to have value, we should make them scarce, meaning that they should, you know, you should have to pay for them. And therefore, if you spam or abuse the network, you would lose your address. And also that an address should always have a sponsor. So there should be someone who's kind of vouching for you. Technically, that person also does some work for you. They help you discover peers on the network. Um, your sponsor is not someone you're permanently tied to, so you can always move to a new sponsor, but you have to have someone who kind of acts almost like your ISP. They're like a service provider for you in the network. Uh, so all those rules are encoded in a set of smart contracts on a blockchain. You can buy an Urbit ID today on like OpenSea. There's actually another company that, <coughs> excuse me, also sells addresses. They're called Urbit.live. Um, so yeah, we deployed the Urbit ID system last January, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and it works well. We we don't expect to change it very much, actually. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> it could have. A, a better interface, certainly, there are things like that that we may update, um, but the system itself works well. Um, I get into a little bit how they're, how these IDs are disseminated or distributed, um, if it's if it's interesting or important. But that's kind of the that's the high level. Yeah, how what what's the roadmap look like for Urbit going into twenty twenty? That's a good question. So, Urbit is very much like a, a ground up project and a very long running one. Um, we literally, like the first thing that was ever worked on in Urbit was this uh, foundational virtual machine. On top of that, there's a programming language, an operating environment that kind of compose Urbit OS itself. And the, really the last piece is the, is the client or the interface, right? How do you actually interact with this thing? And how do you make that as smooth as possible? So over the past year or so, we've been working hard on that now that the, you know, the contracts are deployed, the ID system is deployed. So early uh, in 2020, we'll release what we're calling OS1, basically the first super stripped down um, actual sort of complete user experience for using Urbit. <clears throat> you can think of it like an ultra minimalist like productivity app in a way. So bring a group of people together to chat, share long form articles or write and share links. Um, and over the course of 2020, we're, we have a bunch of releases planned to basically continuously improve that experience. So the experience of bringing a group of people together on Urbit to like build new digital communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it obviously takes a lot of time to, to bring Urbit to fruition. But if you had to guess, when, when do you think it would be something that the average person could start using or playing with or learning? It depends certainly on your, um, you know, Urbit's always been open source and we've always run a live network. <clears throat> um, so anyone can boot Urbit and play with it. I try to tell, I tend to tell people like, uh, you know, Urbit today is a little bit like IRC in the 90s or, you know, it's like running your own, your own Linux. Um, 
it's actually quite easy to install if you're comfortable in the command line. And there are definitely people on the network hanging out who are excited about you know, the potential of a new operating system. I'd say that, you know, that our goal is really to just lower that barrier to entry continuously. So in the first part of 2020, we're looking for sort of, we've been talking to people who say like run real decentralized organizations and little hacker collectives and so on to sort of work with them to help them get set up using Urbit day to day. And over the course of the year, I think we'd like to just lower that bar so it's easier and easier to get on the network and that the software we provide there is like, you know, you just, you log into it through a browser, through a native app, super familiar. Look at what we've got now, um, you know, and kind of keep checking back as things keep getting released. Uh, I think that, you know, that barrier to entry should lower to the point where I think, say, a year from now, uh, Urbit should be very broadly, you know, very easy to use, broadly distributed. So is the website the best place to learn more about Urbit or is there um, documentation somewhere else where people can check it out and read more about it? So the website's pretty good. Um, we're always improving it. I've been working on some updates to the site recently, actually. Um, there's, like I mentioned, so there's worth mentioning, maybe I guess like, so So Urbit is owned by, at this point, you know, many, there are many thousands of people who own Urbit IDs and own blocks of Urbit IDs who sell them and distribute them. So Urbit is really just this community of people working on this thing. Uh, there are two companies who work on the project. Uh, I work for a company called Tlon. We've been around the longest um, and do most of the core development. And then there's a company called recently called Urbit.Live, which is sort of trying to smooth out the onboarding process, make it easy to buy an ID. So you could certainly also check out Urbit.Live. They do a great, they run a telegram and, and have good onboarding documentation. Um, and then you can find both of us where well, you can find Urbit on Twitter and then Urbit.Live on Twitter. That's kind of where most of the updates go out. Um, so either Urbit.org to check out the site. There's a mailing list there where we send out updates and then Urbit on Twitter and Urbit.Live on Twitter. I'll, I'll definitely put links into the uh, description so that people can easily um, get to that. Okay, sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Other than Urbit, and I usually ask most my guests this. Um, I want to know what your thoughts are on blockchain's future, um, also compared to to Bitcoin's future. Because I know that there's there is a difference between cryptocurrency and what blockchain can do, and how that can impact society. From from your perspective, what's your opinion on that? So, as you might expect, uh, my focus is very narrow. I mean, like I, I obviously like care a lot about. I mean, I care a lot about urban, and I guess maybe one step out, I care a lot about maybe kind of what used to be called personal computing, right? So I do think blockchain in the general outside of, I mean, I think both Bitcoin and blockchain in general can have a fantastic impact on the lives of individual people. But I'm definitely stubborn about the fact that in order for that to be true, I think you need a place to call out to the blockchain directly. Um, and obviously, I, I would say that's what, you know, that's one thing that Urbit really should be for. So one example I always give is like, if you do want to, if you wanted to run a DAO, you know, you wanted to like run a company on the blockchain, you need a place not only to send messages, share documents, you also want that same place to be the one where you, um, you know, make vote on governance decisions, where you decide on salary or whatever it might be. 
And there's two kinds of compute that you have to be able to do, right? You want to be able to use a lot of trusted local compute, and you want to be able to call out to uh, you know, a consensus blockchain. Um, and so I guess you know, to, to really actually answer your question, <laughs> like uh, the things then that interest me the most are these tools for building autonomous organizations in the generalized blockchain sense. I think like Aragon, DAOstack, like um, uh, Colony, the, the, I don't know if there's one that seems to, to be honest, like the most likely to succeed, but I think it's a super interesting area of work. I think it's really promising. Um, I do think, you know, and I think it's a great compliment to what we're working on. So I guess it's maybe a little bit selfish. Um, no, no, not at all. How, how does that um, complement Urbit? Well, just that, you know, when I think of somebody, um, uh, you know, sort of sitting down at their Urbit in the morning to work, kind of like, I, I think there's a world in which you can think of you know, what's a what's a really powerful cloud native computing environment good for? Well, it's kind of like the ultimate productivity app, right? Mm -hmm. I no longer switch between all these different things. I get them all in one place. And part of what we do when we are, you know, trying to get work done also involves trusted compute, like things that you would use a blockchain for. So sending payments, uh, making decisions on chain. So whether it's like you're doing on-chain project management, whether you're doing that maybe as like a, even a, not just as a company, but maybe as some kind of neighborhood or loose collective. Um, when I look at how people now, they just run dApps, right? It's like you run this thing in your browser with a private key. Well, you may also want to have that, you know, happen in the background while you're not at your computer. Like it's running a program that calls out to do algorithmic trading of some kind or it is connected to a sensor in your house that then uh, calls out to the chain and so on. So I feel like the promise of DAOs is great. There's a lot of interesting stuff that could happen there, and it works exceedingly well if you have a trusted computing platform you can that individuals run themselves, like like Urbit, basically. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes more sense, too. It helps paint a picture for me of how both those can work more together as well. In terms of Bitcoin or or Litecoin or any other cryptocurrency, is there a way for that to also work hand in hand with how Urbit works as well? Like, is there the possibility to have a a currency aspect attached to Urbit? Yeah, definitely. So your Urbit ID is a short synthetic name. They're algorithmically generated short names like Ravnel Rockdial or Tag. They sound like a name in another language. And you own that name. Um, so the names are four syllables and the passphrases are eight syllables. So like Ponis Podfire, uh, Little Ponice. And that combination of like sort of username and password, kind of like a one password password, is actually an HD wallet that can hold currency. So it can hold Ethereum, soon it will be able to hold Bitcoin. And one nice affordances of this is that you, instead of sending crypto to a long, you know, 160-bit random looking number, like a hash, you can just send directly to this short name. So you have this kind of phone number like addressing system for sending payments. And then with Urbit being, you know, something I use to interact with people, communicate, collaborate. Now when I'm talking to someone and uh, we need to settle up or we decided we want to make a trade or whatever it might be, you get that really nicely integrated into one system. So to me, like, if Urbit is all about giving people this 
you know, really high degree of digital freedom, payments are just an obvious component of that. It should be like, it, and we, we're sort of working to make it really like a native extension of the system. It should be something from user level that's an easy integration, like you can hold a little bit of crypto alongside your Urbit ID, send it to other people, transact on your own without an exchange, without someone in the middle. Uh, and then from a developer standpoint, when you build software on top of Urbit, it's really easy to natively call out and you know complete transactions and so on. Yeah, and I imagine that you'd be able to store private uh, details about like your your crypto wallets and whatnot, like um, like seed phrases and passwords and, and backups um, using Urbit as well. That would be probably more safer than using um, some type of hardware. It, it seems like there's a lot of possibilities for that. We don't, uh, unfortunately, we don't do magic, so we can't make private keys any more secure, right? right? Uh, or like making me nervous. I'm like, don't don't put all your secrets into Urbit right now. Uh, Urbit is not audited. Urbit is Urbit is theoretically very secure, but is not completely secure today. Oh yeah, I mean, but you're right that uh, you know, in theory, yes, we 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 want to. I mean, we really. I look at the way that like crypto's biggest problem, be it. Bitcoin or payments or just generalized usage of blockchain is basically an interface problem. It's very hard to use and it's very difficult to see ordinary people going through the, you know, I mean, even wrestling with the concept of if you lose this password, you have lost all of your whatever, Mm -hmm. right? That's just not something people understand. And so you have to um, make that as easy as possible to understand. And so I guess that's You know, the reason that, for example, like we have this, you know, memorable naming system uh, that is and try and encourage people to, uh, in our documentation, explain like how you can use this to um, uh, like, like how you can basically abide by best practices in how you use this naming system to secure your assets and so on. A lot of it to me is much more of like, it's almost just like a design problem, right? Like, we're not doing any, they're still private keys. We're just trying to encourage you to follow really good patterns and caring for them um, and just make it sensible so that ordinary people can can actually approach it. I, I won't say we're there yet, but I feel like the goal at this point for us is really to like make sure the system is built with that in mind, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And I know there's a lot um, of what we're saying that is still kind of theoretical to some level. But I mean, when you think about how single points of failure really um, cause so many different problems. And then you look at um, how that's definitely caused a lot of problems in crypto as well, despite it being so decentralized, um, whether it be a hardware device or, or putting your, your backups on a piece of paper and that piece of paper is, you know, if you lose that, it's gone. If, but I mean, if you can keep it safe and then all your crypto is safe. Um, and so yeah. you're, you're, and then the single point of failure becomes yourself in a lot of ways. And it seems like, at least theoretically, Urbit could be a, a solution that helps take away some of those single points of failure. I think it's like, the way I think about it is basically that you may very well end up being the single point of failure, but we want to make that not scary, basically. Right. Like, we want that to be simple, straightforward, understandable, you know. One password is very successful, and with that one, you know, one password can't, as far as I understand it, right, like, if you lose all of your one password, you know, keys and seed phrases, you, in fact, have lost all of your logins, right? Right. And 
that, you know, people can understand that. You just have to really make it clear from a design standpoint. I think the thing for me that's also like, you know, most people experience crypto, I feel like in this, you know, very high level sense or like crypto block, like people who are new to this world, right? They experience it primarily through, uh, you use an exchange, you use a hosted service, right? You log in somewhere and there is the thing that you actually own. So to me, I think, you know, the dream of, as we were talking about at the beginning, right? Like the most incredible thing about a blockchain or, or BitTorrent or whatever is that this data, is just lives, you know, on this network somewhere, right? So when I send a payment, it's just handled by these computers out in the world. It's actually kind of a magical and incredible thing, right? Like the minute that we participate in a blockchain network, we are really acting as like independent citizens. And so I think that for me, like one of the things that I, I hope that Urbit can get back or can get into the hands of many more people, as much as I respect the work of like Coinbase, BitGo, et cetera, is basically that, you know, I'd say, look, the idea of this stuff is that people hold the keys themselves and they tr transact directly and they can really kind of do whatever they want, however they want. In, but in order to get there, you're going to have to make it just a lot simpler, a lot more straightforward. And that, that's sort of like primarily what we work on or what, what I really care about. Yeah. And, and you know, I think you guys will definitely reach those goals you're trying to hit. It. I think it's just time with a lot of a lot of these technologies. And I'm sure with Urbit, it, it, it'll get to where it needs to be in time. Yeah, we're getting really close. You know, like um, I, I actually... Uh, yeah. Again, like I was sort of saying before, there have been uh, um, there have been times during the history of this project where I felt it was like we were just like I don't know how we're gonna do this. Um, but at this point, actually, I think that we, you know, I, I I think that Urbit is our approach has always been, you know, the design, whether it be software architecture or sort of like high level visual design. The main thing is figuring out the architecture. That's the hard part. If you can figure out the architecture and it actually makes sense, that's what that's what really matters. How you implement it can be done more than once. You can do it over and over again. And so I think our approach has always been get the architecture right and answer the hard questions. And once you've done that, you just take a full like worse is better approach and just get it to work. And so now that I think most of those architectural questions are answered for us, uh, we can start to kind of iterate through different ways of using Urbit, different ways of experimenting with it and kind of welcoming people on and primarily getting this, you know, Urbit is meant to be a distributed thing. It's meant to be owned by lots of people and kind of handing ownership of this thing over to the community of people who use it, uh, who operate infrastructure nodes and so on. I'm very excited to see where Urbit uh, goes in the near future. Um, so it, it sounds like a really, really great project. Um, I think we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast, but before we um, go ahead and wrap up and everything, are there any um, updates or important dates um, that the audience should be aware of regarding Urbit or anything on the roadmap regarding Urbit that you want the audience and the listeners to be aware of? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got a big release plan for early next year. So if you're curious to see what we're, what we're working on and, and, and how that goes, definitely just most of those updates go to our mailing list. We have such a mix of, you know, half our audience is on Twitter and half our audience, like, you know, hosts their own mail server. Uh, so anyway, we send out a, a, 
weekly or, or no, we send out monthly updates to our mailing list um, that kind of tell people what's going on. So if you're curious, that's really the best place to follow along. With that release, we'll be hosting and kind of like uh, taking care of or kind of on specifically uh, trying to work with a few small communities directly, hosting them and making sure that they have a good experience. We've been kind of opened up like an application for uh, communities who want to try out OS1, try out Urbit, and sort of work with us directly to give us feedback. Details on both the mailing list and the sort of community application form can be found at urbit.org. So those are the most sort of imminent things uh, that people probably be, uh, could be excited about. And social media, you guys are on, on Twitter or... Um on LinkedIn, or where's the best place to follow you guys on social media? Yeah, just Twitter. We actually, we just say, we say, well, Twitter, GitHub, and and Urbit itself. Um, okay. The we Everyone's on Urbit all day. If you're curious to talk to us directly, you know, boot an Urbit and come talk to us. Perfect. Um, Galen, thank you for taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule to come on and talk about Urbit and everything you guys are doing there. Um, Seems really cool. Really excited to see where you guys take that and look forward to talking to you again soon. Again, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. Anytime. All right, Galen. See you next time.